Welcome to the Next Level Business Podcast for entrepreneurs who are looking to take their business and wealth to the next level. Alright guys, welcome, welcome, welcome. Man, we've been going at this strong. I don't even know what week this is. Shane, did you keep track? I think it's nine. Nine? I think. That's pretty consistent. We've got to keep it up. All right. Yeah, when, so, are we, when are we doing a podcast, bro? When is that going live? After we hit 12. Yeah. we 12 weeks. Perfect. Yeah. Just a few more weeks, guys. You're going to be able to check us out on iTunes. All over the world, worldwide. All right, Shane, why don't you introduce our guests today? All right. We got the privilege of having Mr. Wit Fidel, even though his thing says Donald, that's his first name, but he goes by Wit. And he was a client of mine in the banking world. And I, I did a post just a few seconds ago, but th- there was no one in my system that actually did this better than you, Wit. This is why I want to give you credit. This is why I want to have you on. You were dynamic at business, but you were dynamic at real estate. And you combined those two worlds. And I actually, I, I'm actually working on a book about, uh, why business owners need to buy their own real estate. I'm going to have a little success story chapter. You're going to be in that thing, man, for sure. Oh, how nice. Thank you. But tell us a little bit about yourself, man. So uh, in 1990, uh, I started, um, there was a clothing store in College Station that um, was going out of business. Now I remember. (laughs) Now I remember. And and so... uh, I had made a deal when I was 15 years old in 1984 with Columbia House uh, Music, and I bought the customer return compact disc. And so um, I was buying those, and I was taking them in my car to shopping centers, mainly clothing stores and other retail stores, and selling them to the store employees, store owner, as well as the store's customers. And it was a non, I didn't compete with their product. So a lot of times they let me in because it was an exciting situation to buy brand new compact discs for $7. And um, so I was around this clothing store in College Station. And they were, and the guy, the owner told me he's going out of business. And, uh, and then I helped him with the going out of business sale. Uh, and then at the end of the sale, I asked to buy the remaining clothing that he didn't sell. Uh, I bought it. I planned to do a event sale in my apartment to sell that remaining goods. And, um, and what happened was I, I made money. Uh, I made money on the clothing and I made money on the fixtures in the store. Now you were going to and school I, in there, right? At the time yeah. you were going to A&M. Yeah. And yes. how old were you? I was uh, 19. 19. This, this is a JP story right here. This is why it's such a great story. So you bought all this stuff in bulk, and then you, and then you just sold it on a retail level? To, all to, these it, was, it, was, it was really nice product, and uh, it was the kind of things that college kids wanted but couldn't afford. <clears throat> but I would bought it for about 10 cents on the dollar, 
and then it made it very affordable for college students. So they were buy it for 75% off 25 cents on the dollar. And I made a little money and I sold mixtures and I made a little bit of money there unexpectedly. And then I, from then I just went, I rented a van on the weekends <laughs> and I would drive down to Houston and buy, uh, boutiques, women's boutiques out. Again, it was clothing that a college girl would want, but couldn't afford at the regular prices. Same situation you have today. And, um, but when you're buying the excess, then you're getting, uh, you're getting the merchandise at, uh, anywhere between five and 10 cents on the dollar. And then you can run it, uh, a pop-up retail location and sell it for anywhere between 50 and 25 cents on the dollar, 50 off to 75 off. What I love about that is and that's what I, that's what I did. Yeah. What I love about that story is you found something that worked and you were just a young kid. And next thing you know, the entrepreneur was born and you fast forward a few years and tell them about the business that you had that, that birthed out of that. So um, the excess inventory in in uh, boutiques was a uh, seasonal business. And what, so what I did is um, when the seasons change, that boutique uh, excess is available. And what I found is that I needed merchandise more than just when the seasons change. So I began going to the factories. And at that time, Dallas was still a mate. This was pre uh, NAFTA. So there was still a lot of uh, textiles made in, Dallas, Texas. So I'd come to Dallas and buy out small factories of their cancellations and unsold merchandise. And that didn't really work in the pop-up retail because you had too much of the same thing. You really needed a variety uh, for the pop-up retail. So then I started selling to off-price chain stores. Uh, There are still, uh, this was again, pre-Ross, pre-TJ's. At that time. Um, so Steinmart was the first one and uh, they, they didn't have much penetration. So there was a lot of uh, locally owned off price, your local off price retailer, you know, uh, and that's what, that's who my customer was for the uh, factory goods. When I started beginning buying factory goods and that's where we just kind of, um, took off you know we uh that business grew and grew and grew we did uh missy career women's career wear we're good with teachers and um other um uh casually dressed professionals for women so that type of merchandise i was also good at um children's in the south uh south and southeast children's smock dresses are a very big thing and um, so I pursued those goods and had plenty of customers right here in my own backyard to sell to. And then we branched off into shoes. Uh, again, we didn't chase the fashion goods as much, although we got them from time to time. What we mainly focused on was comfort shoes, something maybe your your mother or grandmother may wear. Yeah, you know, what, what I love about that is you actually started a business out of that. You're one of the pioneers in this uh, TJ Maxx, Steinmark, Ross industry. Yeah, we were customer number three it, for TJ Maxx. Story, man, and it just it just birthed out of you were a college kid and you just stumbled upon a you know a guy going out of business and and you just 
you took an opportunity and ran with it. Now, fast forward to you've got a business set up and then you guys, you have this idea you want to buy a building to operate your business out of and what birthed out of that? Yeah. Well, we had good mentors. Um, that was the first thing we had seen just as you're showing people today, the value in, in, in the, uh, wealth building power of real estate. So we had seen that with some mentors that we had. One thing that, uh, we always had was really, we, we kept ourselves very humble or, you know, I'm not trying to brag on myself, but we allowed mentors to in, into our life. And, um, and in that process, you know, when you pursue a mentor, you're pursuing somebody that you think is pretty cool. And typically, if you're a young man, that's a guy with some money. Uh-huh. And um, and one thing about that is, is one common denominator is they had real estate. And um, so we knew that we needed to get into real estate if we wanted to uh, accomplish our, our dreams. And coincidentally... Um, here in Dallas, uh, we had bought a sweater deal, um, and we, one of our customers, bought this store the, the deal, and I and I, if I recall, it was around forty five thousand dollar purchase that he that he owed us, and when the bill came due, he had a building that he had owner financed with a man named Jack Garrett, uh, and he had a little bit of equity at the time. And he told us that if he, uh, that for the value of that invoice, that $45,000 invoice, that he would um, give us his position in that small warehouse in the design district. And this was in 1994. The design district hadn't really taken off. You could, you know, that, that those were still old at that time. <laughs> so, um, we traded him voice for the his equity in the building. The building was full. It had two tenants. It was a duplex, and it had two tenants that we maintained. And and uh, the tenants uh, enjoyed. One of them stayed for twelve years. The other one stayed for seven years. We were able to release the space when the the one tenant left. But it was a it was a small cash flow situation, and it was. Uh, but the building appreciated. Uh, at about six percent a year, wow! And so that was, uh, and then, and it went up even more. It's still uh, tracking on those same numbers. The design design district is uh, just nothing stopping the appreciation over there. So we did that, had a good experience, and then we just kind of went off to the races. We we had a a good uh, lending. We had cash flow. And I cannot discount the value of having a cash flowing business because that, as you know, Shane, is a banker's dream. Exactly. So we had a cash flowing business. We were able to get notes. At the time, it was 20% down, 80% leverage. And um, we'd buy vacant buildings, kind of white box them, which just means clean them up. And, um, paint the inside white, the warehouse white, and um, list them for lease. And when you do that, when you're not buying cash flow, you're, you're buying potential, you, you get a chance to make a little higher return. Yeah, so I, I want to touch on that right there. So you did a strategy that's very cool. 
in the game, you call it, let's say, value add, right? Value add real estate, correct. Buying these properties absolutely vacant. Yep. And, and you know, going into them, and so does the, so does the bank, that it's probably going to take you six months to a year to find a tenant. Twelve to eighteen. So that's a long lead time with no cash flow. Well, but good news is for us is we needed the space to store the merchandise. There you go, and that so we were we were an insurance tenant in our own real estate. And at the time when we were getting started, Shane, um, we could pay rent in those vacant buildings are, are internally. Yeah. As it progressed, uh, we had enough cash flow to cover the the uh, the new purchases, the the debt on the new purchases. So you could take a deal to the bank and and tell them like, hey, if I'm not able to get a tenant, I'll move into the space, and they will accommodate that. And account for it. If you have the cash flow, if you if you can, if your business can show that it can pay the rent, yes. Okay. Hmm. That's why there's a difference between owner occupied real estate and investment real estate. Shane's an expert on both of those scenarios. Owner occupied real estate. There's some, and Shane knows this and can speak on this much better, much clearer than I can. It doesn't count against the bank's reserves. Now. I'll say that. I don't know what it means necessarily, but uh, I kind of do. But uh, investment real estate does. And I believe what it means is is if the bank lends out a million dollars on owner-occupied real estate, they don't have to have uh, whatever percentage of that million held back from in their uh, deposits. And if it's investment real estate, they do have to protect it with uh, by, uh, by decreasing their lending amounts going forward. That is right. Is that, is that true, Shane? Yes. You can okay. lend as much as you want of owner-occupied real estate. It doesn't count against the banks. So the bank loves lending it because it doesn't it doesn't adversely affect their lending uh, limits. And, and that is the number one uh, piece of real estate or a loan in general that a bank wants to do. Owner-occupied. Absolutely. Commercial real estate. It is their I favorite. Know, I know Shane's the banker. But I can tell you that uh, owner-occupied real estate is – if you go to a bank and they say, we're kind of shut down right now, we're worried about this or that, they're never shut down on owner-oc. But you got to have the cash flow to do it, which you always had. Well, thankfully. Yep. Thankfully. And the clothing business was the cash flow. It was the business. It was the golden goose. And what you said is right on. That allowed you to get financing on all the real estate that you wanted to do. And then you fast forward about, I don't know, what was it, maybe 12, 15 years into your business, and you actually, your net worth was higher on the commercial real estate side than it was on the business side. So in 2005, we made a hard push to buy a lot of real estate, and we commit, and I committed myself to the real estate. At that point, it was worth it for me to go full-time real estate and part-time clothing versus the other way around. And so in 2005, from uh, from Katrina to Christmas, I like to say, <laughs> I think we bought four or five buildings. Yeah, and that, these aren't, aren't $500,000 buildings. These were all like two to $3 million buildings, right? Yeah. Each one? Yeah. I mean, I, we'd have to go back and look at them. I didn't, yeah, I, there was not a deal that we did, I don't think, other than the first building that was less than a million dollars. So when you're looking at a building, uh, you like the, the warehouse flex space? Style I do. Or? I okay. like the No, there's a big difference between warehouse and flex. 
Okay. Oh, really? Okay. So flex a flex space would be a typically uh, would have an uh, an a larger office component and most typically a production component where maybe there's some people in there um, adding value to their widget. Okay. Sometimes those are air conditioned. Sometimes they have a ceiling. Um, they have typically, it has a lot of per, employees per square foot in that production and office space. So that requires more bathrooms, um, uh, more active break rooms, everything else. Also, when the tenant leaves in a flex building, you're to regenerate the space to your your leasing cost, your uh, your construction releasing cost, your tenant improvements is typically much higher. Now, in an industrial space or a warehouse space, what you really have typically is a five to twenty percent office component, and then a ninety five. 95 to 80% warehouse component, which when we're talking warehouse, there's kind of two main factors, how far the columns are apart from each other, you know, the span width of the columns that hold the roof up mm-hmm. and how, and how high it is to the deck. Notice nobody asks about number of bathrooms, uh, what color it is, what kind of flooring it has. You know, it's a, it is a, an unair conditioned box. And that is uh, typically your roof penetrations from your air conditioning and your ventilation causes your roof problems. And on the, and that's on the exterior of the building on the interior of the building, your, um, your water, where you, uh, your bathrooms, your sinks and everything else. That's where all the problems come from. Homeowners understand that as well. Um, so in a warehouse, you might have an 80,000 square foot warehouse with four bathrooms in it, okay. four, four toilets. So in, in, in a lot of warehouses, they don't even have a wet break room. Some do, most do, I guess, but some don't. And you just, you get uh, tenants, again, you don't get tenant complaints because, you know, the paint's uh, discoloring in the warehouse wall. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's silly to even say that. Nobody cares. So you, so it's, it's uh, the tenants accept the, a clean, dry space. Yeah. So as you can tell, he is a pro on the real estate side. He's also a pro on the business side. W- what I would love to for you to do right now is give us some tips on the business side and give us some tips on the, on the real estate side. Well, you know, I think um, – you're, you'd be just as good at this as I would, Shane. Uh, you're an excellent business guy yourself. And Josh, I know you've had, built an incredible uh, business, uh, scaled it very nicely. But I'll tell you, the very first rule is, is you have to spend less than you make. And that's a hard, hard thing to understand. You know, you hear so often, um, uh, I don't, you know, I should, I deserve this, whatever, X, Y, Z, you know, there's $50,000 houses and you might need one to spend less than you make. There are $4,000 cars and you might need one to spend less than you make. And that's the cold reality. The other, the second key is that the owner has to stay engaged. So often, uh, 
I did a lot of bankruptcies in the in the uh, opportunities business. And so often as um, as a man, as a business owner begins to start making a little extra money, they buy a boat or they buy a, a, a lot of fishing rods or they buy a four-wheeler or they buy an RV. Well, all these things take away from your business. And then then they called Shane and I and said, hey, what do I need to do? And we're like, go back to work first. Get rid of the RV. Um, so the owner has to stay engaged. Nobody nobody operates a business like the owner. I, it's just there's no you can buy you can have the best manager in the world, but nobody operates a business like an owner. So regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your income and your the increase that your business, the increase in lifestyle that your business may can afford, you have to stay committed to your business hours and your business focus. Those are the two things that, you know, I feel like are the two keys. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, if you have a partner in the business, I mean, somebody has got to work that business day in and day out. And that's, you know, the big difference between the business and the real estate, like over time, you know, you hope that the business becomes more passive than it is, but generally it never really gets to that level, right? It doesn't. Generally, the owner yeah. engage, work 30, 40 hours a week. But on the real estate side, that's the side that if you work for a long period of time has the potential to be passive. And most those, small bit, most small ahead. businesses, it's a mountain. When you open your business, you go up, 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 up. And then when you disengage or your business becomes outdated, you go down, 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 down. It's that you go up the mountain and then down the mountain. And, and I mean, you see it every day in every kind of business. Very few businesses transcend time. Uh, so to think that once you're making good money, that it's, you got, you've got it cornered. You're wrong. You don't have it cornered. You're going to have to reinvent yourself. You're probably going to end up going down. Most entrepreneurs end up on Social Security as their primary source of income. Yeah, the numbers. Most, are- most Americans end up as Social Security as their primary source of income. Yeah, the, the goal. Are- the goal on this thing is to not have that be your primary source of income. <laughs> yeah, it's staggering on the amount of businesses that fail. You know, you'll see different studies. 75 to 95% will fail over a 10 year period. Yeah. That's a massive number, but it, 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 it goes back to what you said. Like I've, I've had guys in business car dealers are prime example in the nineties. They, they did nothing and made three, $400,000 a year. The ones that protected that money and invested it, let's say in real estate, they're still millionaires to this day. The other ones that got that lifestyle that you were talking about earlier, they're the ones that are on social security right now. And I've got several dealers on both sides of that coin right now that yep. I still know. And that's exactly what there's, happened to them. There's 10,000 books in the library that illustrate both examples. There's, you know, the, the athletes are my favorite ones that, you know, that make the millions. And then two, two years after the money stops, they're busted. Um, and, and the books of, of where somebody was able to, um, transcend time and, and reinvent themselves and maybe hop into a different business with capital. Um, 
you know, re- restaurants right now from the um, horrible pandemic. You have these locally owned restaurants. I have one right over here across the street from my house. 30 years she's been in business. It's an incredible restaurant. And, um, you know, she's she's not paying rent, paying for food and her help, and she's not making any money. And she's vowed, she's, you know, in her mid-60s, and she's vowed to uh, to empty her pockets trying to save it. It's tough. And, you know, it's a tough deal. Tough deal. By no fault of her own. Yeah. Hey, so now let's contrast that with the real estate side. Give, give us a few tips on the real estate side. Well, you know, I think um, I think owning your own real estate is the easiest thing to do and probably the very best thing to do. Um, that's, you know, with with is with not much help, you can get that done. You know, with you know, if your business is 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 healthy, you can get that done. Uh, you don't have to be a banking expert or any sort of expert in operating a, in a uh, your own building as you would operating your own house. The um, now from there, you know, I would say that as soon as you um, stabilize your own occupancy, what you might want to do is if location and so many businesses, location is not a primary factor for their business. I, I might put that building for lease that you bought and lived in. And then, you know what? And you're not in any hurry because you're, you're um, in there operating your company. And when somebody comes along and wants to pay your lease rate, move out and buy another one. Buy it vacant, buy it vacant, make a little, uh, make a good buy on a vacant building, go in there and set it up uh, kind of generic to your use and do the same thing. Put it for lease. I love it. If uh, it takes 12 to 18 months to get a lease and it costs about $40,000 to move a company. How much? 40. Wow. Hey, speaking of what Maybe less now. What you just said, Josh, tell them what you did. What was it two years ago? Yeah, we got. I got the first one, and it was a little bit harder than than you made it seem. But uh, it was we got it through. Uh, we, we made it made it go through. You I mean, bought it uh, one wit two years ago. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so I'm I'm actually I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm I'm I just put it on LoopNet about two weeks ago. Smart. And uh, I'm already looking at the next one. So I actually started talking to the economic di- division in Rockwall. And yeah. Some uh, land uh, left over from a project. Uh, and so we're exploring some options with them. With developing your own a new product? Uh, a new uh, a new building. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you leasing or selling your building? The one you have on LoopNet? Oh, I was going to lease it. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And should, I, uh, should I do that with an agent or should I just handle it myself? You know, to be honest with you, Josh, uh, I can understand you avoiding or wanting to avoid agents initially because it is a little commission uh, mm-hmm. to it. But um, and they're very used to being avoided. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I kind of flipped the script on that. And I yeah. think agents were my partners. Right. Okay. You know, uh, 
Shane knows that we offered agents the opportunity if they found us a deal, because you need to buy a good deal, then we then they would make the commission in selling it to us. We then offered them if we bought the building that once we fixed it up, we would use that agent to lease the property where they would make a commission. And once the lease stabilized, we'd use that agent to sell the property. Well, those are three nice commissions. And uh, it it got us to the top of the list on agents. And there's nothing better than a good agent. And there's there's a lot of good agents and there's a lot of lazy agents, just like anything else. But if you find an agent that's uh, that's combing that stuff and, you know, Shane knows uh, one of the guys we use is fantastic. Uh, he was creative in showing the properties for lease. That was his, um, that was his specialty. And he combed LoopNet every day. So if something came on and it fit our profile, he'd bring it to us. He had confidence that we would buy it. And then when he was showing a property, he went, he, he attended every showing, although he was just the listing agent, he attended every showing and he made a lot of deals by being creative and, um, and accommodable. Hmm. I like that. So that's up to you. You'll, you'll love agents later, Josh. I can understand you may not, uh, want to pay them now, but later on they'll make your life a lot easier. Yeah. So, um, when I'm trying to go get financing for the next place, I'll need to have a lease locked in place for the bank. Yeah, well, you, you're, you're, it's your lease, right? Your occupancy. Yeah, exactly. So your banker um, or your banking counselor will um, explain to you what you need to pay in rent to make the financing possible. If you're going to build this building, you may need to pay ten, fifty, triple net to make it to make the numbers work. Mm-hmm. Then that's what you sign as a ten, fifty, triple net lease. Oh, oh the, uh, for the one that I'm moving out of. Okay, the one you're moving into your development project, oh. your new building. Like uh, let's just say you found a building. Forget that you're going to build it. Okay. Let's just say you found a building and it's vacant, and the building's worth two million dollars. And uh, you're able to buy it for a million six, vacant, needs some work, right? Needs fifty thousand dollars worth of cleanup. Well, you're buying four hundred thousand dollars in equity, and you move into it. And on a million six building, you're going to need to provide. Uh, you're going to need to show you know fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars in net rents. So that's the lease you're going to sign, and. Um, you're going to pay that note with that money. You know, you're going to pay the note anyway, but you know, it's going to be uh, theoretically through a lease. And, um, and then you're going to, you're going to put it up for lease. As as you get comfortable in it. So as the building's operating properly, you worked out all the bugs, fixed everything up, you put it for lease, and now you're paying fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars a month in that rents. You're looking for seventeen to twenty thousand dollars in that rents on a new lease, so you can get yourself three to five thousand dollars in cash flow. Once you do that, Shane will tell you that a banker loves you. You know, if he sees that you did that deal, and now you're uh, collecting rent from a credible tenant, and you have five thousand dollars in cash flow, 
your next deal is that much easier to do because um, your next building that you buy, it may again be a million five deal. You won't need to sign a um, $15,000 month lease. You may only need to sign a $12,000 month lease because you have the income from your other property also uh, to cover, to, to give you debt coverage. Now, do you put each of these buildings into a separate LLC or do you just have a We whole- did that. We uh, we started out putting them all in the same LLC. And then later on, we put them all in separate. So okay. I've done both. Okay. Got it. I don't think it matters. I mean, I've never been su- – knock on wood. I've never been sued or have tested why you do those things. So um, I'm not I'm not a lawyer. And I couldn't explain to you why you would put them in a separate LLC or or put them all in one. I will tell you that uh, you know, as a as a as a startup guy, you're gonna um, as a guy getting started, bankers are gonna force you to cross collateralize and do certain things. Everything is a uh, recourse debt which is all normal. Now, you know, later on, uh, years down the road, you may qualify for some sort of non-recourse that we never made it to that point. Um, <laughs> you were close. So I got close. Yeah. We did actually entertain a deal from UPS capital, but, um, to make a long story short, we never had a foreclosure. We never had problems. We did have some. We did have some problems in the meltdown of 2008. I could. That's another book. But that's um, book for sure, that's another book. But uh, we made it through it. We didn't have any foreclosures. We didn't have missed payments. We did learn a lot about DSCR. <laughs> and with the difference between 1.14 and 1.25. Yep, that's the magic number right there. You know yeah, it well. I do. I, I, yeah, it's beaten into my head by several uh, aggressive bankers that had uh, big sticks. Yeah. We're- when you got a new uh, tenant, so let's say this place I'm moving out of, it's about 5,000 square feet. Um, what's, what's the minimum commercial uh, lease uh, term? Typically, on a 5,000-square-foot building, it's usually an office space or a warehouse. It's an office. You it's might get five-year. You'll probably do a three-year deal. Yeah. Okay. It has I, wouldn't do, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything less than three-year. Okay. Yeah. That, okay. Yeah. And, and how much deposit to take? One month. Just one month? One month of gross rents, which includes the escrows, the insurance costs, and the taxes. Okay. Now, would you try to get triple nets for that type of lease for him? Um, you know, yes. I think in office you're uh, typically going to have that. I would retain possible. I would potentially, if you have nice landscaping, I would p- potentially um, continue to maintain that and, and build that back because a lot of times – the tenant doesn't do a good job of maintaining things like the parking lot or the landscaping. 
the sprinkler system if you have one, the general cosmetic appearance of your building. I would retain the maintenance on that. I know it sounds like it's a problem. It's not because you just hire good people to do it and you you keep your eye on your property and if um and you just build a tenant it's a complete pass through to your tenant so you know if you you know you're going to spend the extra dollar whereas they won't spend the extra dollar maintaining your your landscaping but here in texas the landscaping dies you know we get these uh extreme heat and certain time certain times landscaping dies it's just like anything else you, you got to pull it out put the new one in and the new one's going to die too <laughs> in the heat so you know you it's it's a it's just something you got to deal with but what you don't want to end up with is when they leave your landscaping's trash your grass is dead your it needs to be painted and there's a pothole in the parking lot all of which it's way too late now to go collect that. But if you do it every month and bill them every month for it, it's just it's just life, just like your house. All right. I have one more question for you, bro. Okay. All right. So if you were 30 again, which one would you pursue if you were going all in? Would you pursue real estate, building a real estate empire, or would you start on the business side and try to build a business empire? Or would you marry the two worlds together again like you did previously? Well, I, I mean, if I were 30 and uh, didn't have a lot of capital, I would definitely um, I would need I would need a cash flow vehicle. So I got I got to so I've got to do something. Uh, would, you, would you try to partner with somebody that had capital and go the real estate side? Um, to get that cash flow, to get that capital to get started, I wouldn't be scared to. I wouldn't be scared to. Uh, it wouldn't be my preference, but um, I wouldn't be scared to do that. So are you saying you'd go more towards the real estate side? I know what I'm saying is if I were 30 and starting out, I would um, create a business that had some cash flow, and then I would pursue real estate as aggressively as I could. So you do exactly what you did. All over again. Exactly what I did. All right. Good answer. I mean, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, you got to understand, Shane. I'm, I'm looking through my own lens. You know, when I started <laughs> at 19 years old, I had a Ford Tempo. <laughs> That's it. So me, I didn't take it. I didn't risk anything. I didn't have anything. Right. So uh, at 30, I assume if you're in your scenario, I'm. Um, don't have anything. So I've got to get something. I've got to build me some photo booths or sell some clothes or, you know, do something. And I, and it's got to work. And once I get that working, then I can, uh, create the down payments for those buildings. Gotcha. Josh, you got anything else, brother? Stabilization. You mentioned that a couple of times. What's the definition of that? Stabilization would be that, um, your tenant's comfortable and paying, pays on time, doesn't have a lot of excuses, doesn't doesn't seem to be um, seems to be working for them. The space works. A lot of times, people 
will rent a space and it just doesn't work for them. They need more of this, less of this, something. And uh, you learn that in the first year. So, and that's kind of like riding a buck in Bronco. You know, you, as a landlord, you're protected by the lease, but it's not working for them. Right. And so you can start going through your minds, uh, going through your mind about how you're going to, what you're going to charge them to let them out. And you might want to go buy them a new building, something that works for them. Cause now you got a potential, you got a tenant in your pocket. And um, so you might want to try to solve it that way, or you, you might have to suffer through the lease, but, but you know, you're not going to get a renewal and a stabilized tenant is happy and comfortable there. When that happens, you'll likely get a renewal if the space fits the t- the tenant. And that's what you want. You want the potential to have a renewal. And and so you're going to make your tenant comfortable. You're going to go the extra mile for them. You know, you're going to pay for things that maybe their responsibility from time to time because you want to build that relationship just like you would in in your in your business. You want your customers happy. And um, tenants are your customers. And I'm not I'm not saying, you know, that you got the lease does protect you legally. They're responsible for what they're responsible for, and you're responsible for what you're responsible for. Let me give you an example. I had a tenant that signed a lease and they're responsible for the uh interior and exterior plumbing. Well, three months into their lease, the main line broke. Well, and he's like, man, <laughs> you know, or the air conditioner breaks. You know, when, when you when you hand over a building, if the air conditioners work, that's it. They work. That's the way the lease is written. And they're supposed to hand them back to you working. But, you know, and and uh, you hand them over and two months later, two months into it, air conditioners dead. Well. You might want to buy them a new air conditioner or you might want to split it with them. You know, you gave them an air conditioner that was, according to the lease, working in good working order. But the reality is, is that the air conditioner was on its last legs and the tenant is experiencing an unpredicted cost early on into the deal. And so, you know, uh, we always extended our hand thinking that we would, um, you know, it would help us in renewal. And sometimes you got to tell them no. Every time an air conditioner comes out, they're going to call the landlord. Don't worry. And you're going to have to point out that section in the lease. After they've been there five years and never changed the filters, it's your responsibility, sir or <laughs> ma'am. But, uh, but if it's not their fault, split it with them. As Shane and I discussed, a lot of those things, you can do it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If the night you can be a little bit nice. There's enough margin in the game. Yeah, that's one thing I always loved about you, man. I mean, you know, you always saw the bigger picture. So if you give a little here, but somebody signs a ten-year lease with you, you won that deal. I just consulted with a um, a guy going in the service business. And I said, well, he's going to be a, a plumber, a service plumber. And I said, well, if you if you if you make the customers happy and charge a little less than the next guy, 
you'll have 400 trucks in 10 years. It's just that simple. If you if your customers are happy and you charge a little less than the next guy, there's plenty of work out there. It's when you get when you get inside your head and think, oh, you know, get mad or that's not sustainable thinking. It's true. You know, when I had the restaurant, I always aired on the side of the, the, you know, the old thing, the customers always write, I always try to do that. And yeah. I would have, you know, the, the wait staff would come up and say, man, you know, this guy's just, he's playing you. Yeah. And I'm like, I get that, but how much am I really out? Right. And I, what's it going to matter? Even if it's a free meal total, it's three bucks for me. That's my cost. Right. But that guy comes back two times this month. What have I got? Average ticket, 30 bucks a piece. I've got another 60 bucks out of the guy. That's right. That's right. When I bag on the guy and say no to him, it was a done. Down. He goes You're out done. and spreads that all over town. His ego won't let him come back. That's right. He, not only will he not come back, he's going to tell 10 other people not to come back. Maybe. But uh, and, your food was so good that I don't think you could have stopped him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I think that, um, you know, we're all. Uh, you guys are a little younger than I am, but we're all, we all got a lot of life left and we're going to need a break when we need a break. And and when we can give a break, when we got the chance to give somebody a break, I say, do it. And I've known you a long time and he, he is that he is what he's talking about. So, Hey, we appreciate you coming on tonight. We thank you for your time. Hopefully. Thank uh, you. Thank you guys. I enjoy this. You know, you guys, uh, uh, bring back some great memories. Yeah, he's a hell Shane, of a I've known you for a long time, and uh, you've always been a great guy and an excellent banker and, a, and an invaluable friend. Well, I appreciate that. And if you ever want to play a game of golf, don't play with Wit because he will not only beat you, but he'll take your money. <laughs> real, real estate's really good for your handicap. Yeah, he is a scratch golfer, and uh, he doesn't mess around. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. But thank you. Thank you, guys. Have a nice night. Thank you, Wit. All right. All right. Thanks, bud. We'll see you. Bye-bye.